I don't know, but I'm sure many of you have heard that, that expression, a proverb, the darkest hour of the night is just before dawn. And it's a proverb that sometimes is attributed to Great Britain's Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, during the period that he served at the United Kingdom during World War II. And if you follow the history and the developments of that, that global struggle, Early on in World War II, around 1940 rather, word had reached Winston Churchill in Great Britain that France had fallen to the Third Reich forces under the direction of Adolf Hitler. And, and France was one of Great Britain's greatest allies. So it's almost like Great Britain is standing alone against the forces that threatened to take over and dominate all of, uh, the, of, of Europe and Western Europe. And so out of that, as, 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 as Winston Churchill so characteristically to do as a motivator, as an inspirator, as a statesman, yeah, he, he, he used this expression, that the darkest hour of the night occurs just before dawn. And, and he's using that to inspire the, the people of France, as well as the people of Great Britain, the leadership of Great Britain and the citizens to see that, that there's hope in the darkest of times. And actually the proverb originated with a England, uh, English theologian by the name of Thomas Fuller back in 1650. But, but that thought that in the darkest of times when we're sometimes the most desperate and, and despair has fallen upon us. We, the people of God, the people of faith, we have assurance that, that in the darkest of time, there's hope through our faith in our great and wonderful God. So in today's lesson, I hope you'll see how sovereign God, who controls the destiny of every person and, and all of history and works in, the, in some of the darkest hours of the lives of individuals and nations, and particularly here as we look today in the nation of Israel and even in the world, God will shine a ray of hope and ultimately redemption. And I hope you'll follow that. Let that, that thought follow us as we go through the lesson this morning. So as a brief recap, since it's been several weeks since Tim preached the first part, uh, the first chapter in 1 Samuel, we're going to look, first of all, just as a refresher of what was transpiring then. And I simply want you to see the first point in the outline is Hannah's darkest hour preceded God's dawning moment. You may recall that Tim helped us to see Hannah's awful predicament. You see, she, she was a, a Jewish woman. Uh, she had a godly husband, a good husband, and, and yet she was physically barren. And Tim pointed out to us that, that Hannah's Physical barrenness, barrenness symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness. And during that period of Judges, uh, Israel was going through a dark time, very spiritually dark time. And we'll see that in our text today as we look at it even closer. He also pointed out that throughout the book of 1 Samuel, you'll see how the writer uses a number of contrasting characters and circumstances that provide the, the, the reader with, with great lessons. It enhances the lessons of the text. So we see Hannah's darkest hour preceded 
God's dawning moment. She was suffering. She was suffering through the hurts and the humiliations of barrenness, the unwarranted taunts of a jealous wife, her rival wife, Penina, as we saw there in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, how she taunted uh, Hannah over and over. And Penina was, was fruitful. She was bearing children left and right. She had no mercy upon her rival wife. Even though Alcana was a good man, a righteous man, he was not a perfect man. He didn't choose to follow God's scriptural pattern for the, for the marriage, for the, for the institution of marriage. Instead of being one man and one woman uh, making up a marriage, he involved another woman, and we saw the complications that came out of that. So she's subject to the unwarranted taunts of this rival wife. She's also subject to the unfounded and unbiblical social ostracism that basically in the Jewish culture said that if a woman was barren, it was obviously an indication that, that she had sin in her life and that she was suffering God's judgment. Nothing could have been further from the truth as you get to know this woman, Hannah, because she was a godly woman. She was a woman full of faith and trust in Jehovah. And she loved the Lord with all of her heart. Nothing could have been further from the truth. But the fact was God was allowing her, her season of barrenness and struggle to be a time of, of testing, to demonstrate her uncompromising faith in Jehovah. And as you see the story unfold, you see that this woman was not, she was not resentful towards God. She wasn't blaming God. She wasn't looking for excuses. She simply came before the Lord. She trusted in the Lord, no matter how dark, how bleak her circumstances were. At the same time, Israel as a nation was failing the same sort of test. In the midst of their spiritual barrenness, they weren't turning to God. They weren't calling upon the Lord. They weren't trusting God. And we know as we looked at that text in chapter 1, God heard Hannah's humble prayers and graciously answered by giving her a son, a precious son, the son she prayed for. So Hannah goes from suffering hurt and humiliation to soaring on the wings of praise and worship of Jehovah because God has given her a son, a son that she turns right around and commits to serve the Lord, promising the Lord that if he would give her a son, this son she would bring back to the Lord to serve in the, in the tabernacle, to serve the Lord for as long as he lives. And so in chapter 1, verse 25 through 28, we see that, they, that Elkanah and, and Hannah and the family are returning back to the tabernacle. This would be almost three years later. And she's bringing this little boy that God has blessed her with, and she is following through and honoring the promise that she made to God, leaving this little fellow. The scripture says as soon as he was weaned and in the Jewish culture that time, probably age three, maybe four years old, you imagine, I, I'm appealing to the mothers and the grandmothers in the crowd. Can you imagine bringing that precious firstborn to, that, 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 you, that God has blessed you with and, and leaving him at church to live and to serve and, and, and you not be around him in a distant place? What faith. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we see her beautiful prayer of praise. She's gone from, from, from the darkness of, of barrenness, and now God has blessed her, and, and she's responding by faith. And, and what a beautiful, beautiful prayer, praising God for his faithfulness and, and his goodness and his glory. And, and, and you, you look at that, and you can see where it parallels the beautiful prayer of praise that Jesus' mother 
the Virgin Mary prayed. When she found out she was going to be barren, the Son of God, she prayed the beautiful prayer we call the Magnificat, that very much as Hannah was doing, these two prayers almost parallel one another. So you see this, this wonderful godly woman fulfilling her promises to God, bringing back her little son, leaving him there, but she's not deserting him, I promise you that. Even though she may see him maybe only you know a few times during the year or once a year, as the text would allude to, she stays involved in his life because she realizes he is a servant of the Lord. He is a gift from God. So in, in stark contrast to Hannah's situation, as we open up in the text today, and we'll be beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, you'll see Eli, the priest, Eli's evil priesthood is one of Israel's darkest spiritual moments. You see, preceding this episode in 1 Samuel, through the book of Judges, Israel has committed apostasy, immorality, uh, engaged in all kinds of sinful behavior. God would chastise them. They would repent. There would be revival. Then they'd fall right back. It was a vicious cycle of unrepented sin and rebellion against God. And, and so it's in that context, out of that context, that we have this priest Eli, a descendant of Aaron, that we read about in our responsive or in our uh, Old Testament reading, uh, Pastor Mark just read to us. So as you look at verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. In other words, they left. And the boy, speaking of Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Oh, that would be comforting if we knew that Eli was a wholesome and a godly priest and who was obedient to the Lord and serving the Lord faithfully. It would be one thing if you're going to leave your little boy and, and entrust him to be raised and nurtured. It would be one thing if the priests were godly, faithful priests. But we're talking about a priest who is very errant in his ways. In fact, Eli's spirituality was bankrupt before God. You see, as descendants of, of Israel's first priest, Aaron, Eli and his sons, Phinehas and, and Hophni, they inherited the honorable role as priests, as servants of the Most High God before his people. Their responsibilities included, as you, you know from the text, burning the offerings in, uh, uh, on the altar in the tabernacle courtyard, burning incense in the holy place of the tabernacle, they were reverently, they were supposed to be reverently ministering before the Lord, wearing the priestly ephod, which is a robe that, that was adorned with the sacred stones and had the names of all 12 tribes. So they represented the nation, the people of God, as they went into the presence of Almighty God. And yet we see in the text we'll look at here that his priestly sons exhibited blasphemous actions and attitudes that were offensive towards holy God. Look with me there in, in chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Talk about an introduction. In some translations, that, that expression talking about uh, Phineas and Hophni, Eli's sons, worthless men. In some translations, it's translated sons of Belial. In other words, sons of the devil, they were that, that spiritually uh, unfaithful and, and, and bankrupt. 
And they were worthless men, sons of Belial, the devil, and they did not know God. Hence the problem at the core of the whole problem is there, there's no relationship with God. Oh, they had religion. They understood the rituals, but they were void of a personal faith relationship with God. And they treated the offerings that they brought, that the people brought to the tabernacle for the worship of God. They treated the offerings with contempt. Look at verse 12 again, or pick up in verse 13. The custom of the priest, and this is in this is not according to the Levitical law. This is the custom of the priest during the time that we're looking at in this particular era. This is the custom of the priest, Eli's sons. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, in other words, in preparation for it to be offered, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, something like a fish hook that you grab a big fish with. They had this three-pronged fork in their hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle, the cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. You'll notice himself. You know, this, the, the scripture allowed that when people brought their offerings, their meat for the, to be offered on the altar, God made a, an allowance so that a portion of that would be reserved for the family to eat. So, so they're not only robbing from God in their greedy and gluttonous fashion, but they're robbing from the people as well. And the people see this. These are supposed to be the priests of God, the representatives of God. And so it says, this is what they did at Shiloh to all the tribes who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if a man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it to me now. And if you don't, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And see, as you, God was very specific in giving instructions to how the offerings of, of, that were brought by the people to, to be given to God were, was to be done. For instance, in Leviticus in chapter 7, let me just read this portion to you in verse 31. In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 31, the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast he shall, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of the peace offering. You'll notice one thing stands out. God said the fatty portion of the meat is to be reserved for me, for God. Because of sweet aroma rising up from that altar up towards heaven is oftentimes described as pleasing to God. It was God's portion. But you see, God had already told them in, in the Levitical law, there in Leviticus chapter 7, that there was specific, specified portions of the meat that would go to the priest. And you see how far they had, they had strayed from that, how disrespectful they were. 
They weren't carefully allotted the portions that was, were to be theirs by the law. They were just reaching in with a fish hook and grabbing as much as they could and yanking out all that they could for themselves. It didn't matter if it was fatty. didn't matter if it was lean. It was just, this is ours. Leaving very little probably to be offered to the Lord. And you see, this is just, just their contempt for something that was supposed to be sacred as the people were bringing their offerings that would, would serve to atone for their sins and to keep peace with God, and they were treating it with total disregard. And so we see evidence of their spiritual darkness there, but but goes beyond that because they not only treated the offerings of God with contempt, they treated the holy place of worship, the, God's tabernacle, with, with, with shameless neglect. If you look at verse 22, when Eli is getting ready to confront his sons. It says, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of, the tent of Medan. Not only were they showing contempt towards God's offering, but they were showing total disrespect for God's place of worship. They were actually seducing Israelite women who had been set apart, almost like female Nazarites, they had been set apart, they had dedicated their lives to serve in the tabernacle. That would be cleaning articles of worship, they would be cleaning and preparing the, the altars and helping with the preparations. They, they were God's servants. These, these women belonged to Jehovah for the purpose of assisting in worship. And yet, you look at the shameless neglect that these supposed priests was, was conducting themselves with. They, and they were reducing these, these godly women, these women dedicated to serve the Lord, they were reducing them to nothing more than temple prostitutes, very similar to the pagan nations around them. You get an idea of the darkness of this time period as far as the priesthood of Israel went. But as we look at his sons, we see also how not only was Eli's sons blasphemous in their actions and attitudes towards God, but we see Eli's impotence as a spiritual leader in his roles as father and priest. So you go back to verse 23 and look at what he says to his sons. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it is, not, it is no good report that I hear the people uh, of the Lord spread and abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will me mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But notice what comes next. That they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eli was, was ineffective, disrespected by his sons. He failed to supervise the ministries of his son. You'll notice that he talks about what he's heard. I've heard the people say, I've heard the people say, you've done this. I've heard the people. Where was he? He doesn't say anything about what I saw. He was, he was, he was, functioning as a priest in proxy, if you will. And therefore, he couldn't even testify 
to the atrocious things that he had seen, he was dependent upon the reports of the people and, the, and, the, and, and relying upon what he had heard. And they failed to heed his warning. That wasn't the first time. All through the, uh, the lives of these, these young adult men, how many times he tried, maybe he chided them or chastised them and they just totally went over their heads because they knew he didn't mean anything. Those of you who are parenting and have, have become very scholarly in that area of your life because of the parenting class now, you understand. You can't just have rules. You've got to have reinforcement. You've got to back it up. You, our children need to know that when you say something, it needs to happen. And if it doesn't, there are consequences. If you disobey, there are consequences. Obviously, this was not a lesson that, that Eli's wayward sons learned. He's trying to reason with them. He says, listen, understand that what you're doing is not just against man. If you were just sinning against men, that would be one thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Because you could, God would intercede on your behalf if you came before the Lord and repentance, you could bring offerings of repentance and your sins would be forgiven. God can intercede for you when you are violating other men. But he says, who? Who is there to stand for you when you are intentionally and directly sinning against God? And his very offerings that are, that are intended to atone for sin you are totally disregarding them. Who can stand for you now? One of the most chilling statements is that God didn't intercede. He didn't try to turn them. Why? Because he'd already determined that in his divine plan, they're going to die. And as the, as the book of Samuel unfolds, we'll see that to be the case. But how sad. How sad, but the worst is yet to come. There is no dawning of hope when it comes to Eli and his family. There will be for Israel, but not for this priestly family because God had already determined that their sins were too grave and, and according to his providential plan, they would, they would suffer consequences, grave consequences. And so we look at, at, at God's ominous prophetic rebuke. As you look at verse 27, and there came a man of God, and that's a dis distinction that oftentimes in the scriptures refers to a prophet of God. A man of God is, is a prophet of God. Someone sent intentionally by God with a message. And there came a man of God, no, no name is given to this prophet, but he, sure, sure had a, he may have not had a name, but he had a message. And he came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father, speaking of Aaron, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commended for my dwelling? 
and honor your sons above me. There's Eli's sin. He put his children before God. He put his relationships with his disobedient, disrespectful sons ahead of holy God. And God called his hand on him. Why are you putting your sons even above me? By fattening yourselves, you see, Eli's incriminated. Oh, sure, his sons were the ones that were responsible for sending the servants around and gathering up the meat with all the fat portions and everything, and, and they're getting fat, you know, gluttonous. But you'll notice that God didn't say, you know, his sons are fattening themselves. He says, by fattening yourselves, you too, Eli, you're pigging out on these sinful offerings as well. Or sinful collections, the offerings were not sinful. They were intended for a very righteous purpose. In verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. And now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be highly or, or shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not there will not be an old man in your house then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever this is chilling folks the only one of you whom i shall not cut off from, your, from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house will, shall die by the sword of men. And this that thou shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. In a very short time, as we proceed in the book of First Samuel, you'll see that horrible episode. And he says, I will raise up from myself a faithful priest who shall be, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in the one, put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Oh, listen, what God had spoken, first of all, to Eli from this man of God was God revealing his imminent judgment upon Eli and his two sons, as we see in verses 32 or 27 through 31. God promises to the priesthood, he promises to the priesthood that it would come without clear expectations. God promises that, he says, listen, I, he gives promises to the priest, but he says, there's clear expectations that I have. In verse 30, he says, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So God is saying to, to Eli, he's saying, listen, 
my principle is this. As a priest, if you honor me, I will honor you. And God has, down through the years, has honored the priesthood of Israel until it gets to this point. But it says, if you despise me by your actions and your attitudes, as your sons have done, and you have condoned, then you can expect that I won't have much esteem for you. And God is as much as says to Eli, your household, your present household, the family that surrounds you, that you are endeared to now, they will fall. And that will happen very shortly in, in, our, in our continuation in 1 Samuel. But then it's what the Lord revealed from verse 32 on to verse 36. He unfolds his eventual judgment on Eli's future family line as well. He said, not only are you and your sons doomed, but through your atrocious behavior and attitudes towards me, the sins that you have committed, and this dark era that you've brought upon Israel, he says, it will cost your future family as well. Richard Phillips, Phillips explains in his commentary on this prophecy, he says, this promise is fulfilled in the days of King David, when Doag, the Edomite, slaughters all of Eli's descendants at the tabernacle, with the sole exception of Abiathar, who will be eventually replaced by Zadok, who is from a more preeminent family of the line of Aaron. That's in 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 23. But then also listen to these words coming later in 1 Kings, but still relevant to our text today in 1 Kings in chapter 2, verse 27. Listen to what he says. So Solomon expelled Abath Abiathar. Remember, that's the last one of Eli's descendants, still functioning as a priest. He was serving as a priest under Solomon until Solomon discovered that he had aligned himself with Solomon's brother, Adonijah, who was rivaling Solomon, trying to take over Solomon's kingdom. So Solomon yanked him out of the priesthood and put Zadok, who was from a more preeminent family line, to take over his priest. That was the end. That was the ultimate, absolute end of Eli's family line in priesthood. And what Mr. Phillips is talking about when during David's reign, the descendants of Eli at that time were still functioning as priests and they were aligned with, uh, with David. Of course, Solomon, I mean, King Saul was deranged and he was trying, he found out that David and his men fleeing from Saul had gone to the tabernacle and, and sought help because they needed food. They were running for their lives from deranged madman King Saul. And so the priest from his heart knew David was a good man. And he knew it was God's will to, to give him the, 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 the shoe bread from the altar to feed them as, a, as an act of mercy. And then when Saul found out about it, he was incensed. He thought of the priest as being enemies of his own kingdom. So he, he tried to recruit some of his men to go and kill the priest, Eli's descendants, but they, they, they honored the priest too much. They wouldn't do it. So they turned to a foreigner, an Edomite, by the name 
of Egog, and he sent Doeg, and he sent him, and he slew every one of them except for Abiathar. Everything that God is prophesying through this man of God in this very spiritually dark period in Israel's life will come to, come to pass. And we'll see that as we continue on in our series. But what I want to go and what I want to do now as we prepare to wrap up is, is I want us also to see this theme of how God works. He's, he's working in, in this dark time in the, in the life of the nation of Israel. But, but I want you to see in the third point of the message, sovereign God shines a ray of hope into Israel's darkest hour. If you are an Israelite, this was your priesthood. This is what religion represented for you ungodly, unethical, unbiblical priest who had no regard, in fact, didn't even know God. You might be tempted to think we're doomed. You know, kind of like the Lord character on uh, oh, one of the cartoons, that, uh, they, they're lemurs. And, and one of the characters is always running around saying, we're gonna die, we're all gonna die. That may have been the attitude of an Israelite in that time period. But God is shining a light of hope. Because I want you to turn your attention very quickly now to young Samuel. I want you to see how God is working in a restorative and a redemptive way. Young Samuel's family is a refreshing contrast to old Eli's family. Well, we've already seen in chapter one how his, his godly parents you know, looked to the Lord, trusted in the Lord, and Hannah, being a woman of faith, trusted in God, and called upon him, and, 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 and pled with the Lord to give her a son, and even to the point that she pledged to give the son back to God. God blessed her. She brought the son that she promised to give to God to the tabernacle. Little Samuel is growing up there in, in the tabernacle now. He's, in fact, in verse 11, it talks about, and the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Even from the very beginning, four years old, as a toddler, got a little ephod on, a little apron. I mean, a little white robe, if you will. It basically said he was a priest in training. He was a priest apprentice. He's following along, trying to do everything that, that a priest is going to do. He starts serving then. But then also, look at verse 19, and his mother used to, to, to his, his mother used to make him for a, a little robe and, and take it to him each year when she went up with, his, with her husband to offer a yearly sacrifice. He was clothed in a, in a linen ephod and his mother used to make him a, a little robe to go over. The ephod was kind of like a, 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 sheet, a, a sleeveless uh, top that he would wear with the ornaments and on it. But then the, she would make him a little robe. And every year, every year, she continued to bring him a robe tailored for his, his, his growth all that time. She stayed invested in her son's ministry, realizing that she was the one that had committed him to the Lord. But you see Samuel's obedient service to God too, from verse 11 and verse 18. And now if you look at verse 26, it says, but the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with him. And so uh, also with man. So, so you see that, that, that Samuel is there in, in, a, in, a, in a bad spiritual environment, but by the grace of God, he's growing. He's, he's, he's developing. He's, he's showing signs of spiritual you know, maturity as he's growing in these young, impressionable years of his life. 
And you'll notice that statement that he uses there. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Does that sound familiar? Do you, do you recall when Jesus was 12 years old, when he went to the temple with his parents and, and they lost him there or left him there for a while? He was there for about three days and he was in the midst of the teachers and he was engaging in conversation with the religious teachers and amazing them. And, and Luke records there in Luke 2, 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. A parallel with this young Samuel. Samuel's faith and obedience foreshadowed Israel's greatest king. In the midst of the darkness of the, of the priestly reign of Eli and his wicked sons, God was shining, dawning, a new day of hope because Samuel would become the prophet who would pave the way for King David to become king. He would be the very prophet that God would send to anoint David to be king. You understand that in the, in the reign of King David, this was Israel's finest hour. The reign of King David would be a time of glory and prosperity and prominence for God and for his people. So even in the darkness of that hour, just before the dawn of a new era, God is shining a ray of hope. And of course, we know that out of the darkness of spiritual apostasy, God rekindles the promise of the Messiah, the long promised Messiah, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God says, I will provide a way. And even in this dark spiritual time of apostasy and rebellion and wickedness, on the behalf of the priests, there God was keeping alive the hope of the, of the promised Messiah. Because we know that just as God would raise up David to be one of the greatest earthly kings of Israel's history, we know that out of David's own lineage would come the very promised Messiah. God is pointing to the future. He's pointing to what he has in, in, in store for his people. I think about the world in which we live, totally enshrouded by sin at every level. Uh, and so many people look at the state of the world today and almost feel hopeless, as if the, the, the darkness of sin has gotten so dark that we can't even see a way. But folks, there is a way. There's always been a way. God will provide a way. I think about a song that Gloria Gaither wrote years ago. Some of you probably heard it. The title was simply this, hold on my child, joy comes in the morning. There is a morning, a, a, break, a great breaking of dawn for those who look to the Lord and trust in him. Mankind's darkest moment estranged him from the presence of God. Think about it, from the fall of man, all the way back in chapter three of Genesis, the world has grown progressively evil from the cumulative spiritual darkness that's prevailed over humanity since that fall. Never had the world gone so long under the curse of sin, think about it, separated from God than the night that Jesus was born. You're talking about a dark night. If you think about the cumulative effect in all the thousands of years that has transpired since man has dwelt in the presence 
of the Lord. The darkest hour was the night Jesus was born, just before Christ was born. Because the Messiah's miraculous birth marked the dawning of an age of grace. And not haphazardly and not randomly, but very, very divinely, precisely, God had that moment set in time. Paul reminds us of that in Galatians 4, 4, when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Hallelujah. Because a deep and dark, almost seamlessly impenetrable darkness of sin was about to give way to the light. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the angel reminded Joseph that in fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah, talking about this son that, that Mary would give birth to, who would be the son of God, the angel reminded Joseph, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which can be translated God with us. No longer. But man fumble and stumble through the darkness of sin, seeking for God, God would come to, to man by his own son, Jesus Christ. And folks, what a monumental moment in the history of mankind. In that darkest hour, dawn was about to break. The light of God's love and eternal life would shine in the darkness. How do we know that? Because the scripture tells us that. John, in the prologue of his gospel, chapter 1, verse 5, he said, The light, speaking of Christ, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I got good news for you. It will never overcome it. Because it is the divine light of God. And he goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 9, John does, the true light, speaking of Christ, which gives light to the everyone, was coming into the world. So in Israel's darkest hour, God was preparing them for the dawn of a new era that was about to break. In the world's darkest hour, God was preparing to send the blessed hope of his Messiah that would shine the light of redemption for generations to come, for all of mankind. And in the world in which we live today, as bleak and dark and hopeless as things may appear, and sometimes we experience that darkness through horrific news stories of terrible mass shootings or, or, or violent domestic uh, uh, abuse or nations unjustly, you know, killing so many people in war or natural disasters taking thousands of lives off into eternity. Oh, the darkness can appear so intimidating. Even in the darkest hour. But we know, we, people of faith, we know that God is bringing an era of, a, a dawning, an era of hope 
and redemption and eternal life. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled as we open up the text of your word and how clearly and how powerfully you speak to us in this modern era from ancient lessons learned by people long ago. Lord, you have revealed yourself over and over and over through the thousands of years that have transpired since the fall of mankind and the onset of the darkness of sin. And so, Lord, we come this morning just to bow before you, to open our hearts up to you. And dear friends, I ask you this morning as we're still praying, as our hearts and minds are open to the Lord, First, I would say to any who are here today who have yet to accept by faith God's great gift of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for our sins and was buried and was resurrected from the grave. If you've never felt the convicting power of God's Spirit upon your heart to repent of your sinfulness, and to put your trust in Jesus Christ and receive salvation and the hope of eternal life. Oh, listen, dear friend, let me just suggest to you that you are living your darkest hour right now. And the only hope for the dawn of, of, of eternal life and redemption for you is if God stirs your heart right now and opens your blinded spiritual eyes to see that you need Jesus Christ. The only one who can save us from our sins. The only one who has died for our sins. The only one who can bring us to the Father. If you sense that prompting of God's spirit upon your heart this morning, and you see and sense the light of the gospel beginning to penetrate your own heart, let me encourage you as soon as possible that you seek out Pastor Scott or myself or one of the other pastors that we might counsel you from God's word to receive God's gift of salvation. Brothers and sisters like Hannah, you may be experiencing a dark hour circumstantially. You're a child of God. Your salvation is secure in Christ and yet you're going through a period time and circumstances that is, is, is dark, weighing on your heart. And might I encourage you to look beyond the darkness to see the light of Christ who has promised us he would always be with us. He'd always be available to us. He tells us to ask and, and it'll be given to us to seek and we'll find and knock, it'll be open. Listen, he's, he's encouraging to come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There's light beyond the dark hour that you're in now. There's hope. It's in your faith in Jesus Christ, not in yourself, not in other people, not in this world, but in Christ. 
however God may be speaking to your heart, just know that he has demonstrated time and time again that even in the darkest times, God is still God. He is still sovereign. He is on the throne. And there's always hope through his precious son, our Savior, our Lord, in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ, amen.